Hello, my friends. Welcome to Word Made Digital. I'm your host, Joanna LaFleur, and this is Season 5, Episode 12. On the podcast today, we have Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil. I'm going to tell you more about her in a minute, but I was introduced to her originally, oh, even 10, 15 years ago through university circles, and I can't wait for you to listen to her. Maybe you're tuning in just specifically for this episode. So welcome if you're new, if you haven't been on the podcast before. Uh, check out the other episodes. We've got a huge archive now of five seasons of amazing conversations all around. How do we do digital discipleship, digital uh, church, digital evangelism? How do we creatively compel people to the good news of Jesus in this digital age? So if you're interested in any of that, why don't you join us on the Digital Church Facebook group? There's a link down below. You can also just search Digital Church on Facebook. You're going to find it. The group's been growing. And even just in the past week, there's been a ton of action, conversation, really good insight that people are sharing really just brilliant experts kind of from all over the world now are starting to join in. So would love you to be part of the conversation. And it's a way for us to get to know each other better as well. So click on that link. And also we have weekly tutorial videos. If you're looking to grow and learn in communications and how to, you know, film yourself at home with just some tools you have around the house, or maybe you're looking to join and start your own Facebook group, whatever it is, we have all kinds of videos we're coming out with to help you really practically do communication and reach people in the digital so we'd love you to check those out again link below wordmadedigital.com you can get more hey so it's black history month and i thought why not kick it off with dr brenda salter mcneil she's an internationally recognized thought leader on the issue of reconciliation and she was featured as one of the 50 most influential women to catch by christianity today so she's a co-author and an author of many books she's a professor She was also the one to step into leadership when Eugene Cho stepped down from his church. Um, She was the one to bridge that transition as the pastor and lead teacher there. Uh, Amazing woman. And I couldn't bring her to you today without a huge shout out to my sponsors and partners. Wycliffe College first. Uh, If you're looking for a way to grow as a disciple in Jesus, maybe you want to grow your leadership and you want to get more theology and leadership education, consider Wycliffe College. If you go to wycliffecollege.ca slash work, me digital you can see a little bit about why i chose the school myself where i went and did a master's in theology uh but also they're gonna send you some swag so if you hit them up there they'll uh they'd love to send you some mail so everybody loves mail why not do it but i chose the school for lots of reasons including just simply that they have top scholars top faculty great thinkers and if we ever need more uh smart thinking Christians. It's in the climate we're in today. So check it out if you're looking to to further your education. Also, of course, thank you so much to Compassion Canada, just an amazing partner. Something I love about Compassion is that they are committed to equipping Christians and the church for missions and ministry. And that's really why I've partnered with them. I've been able to see this up close. And so, as I've said earlier, these tutorial videos that we've been putting together are just a great example of how the church looks, sorry, how Compassion looks to support the church here in Canada. Because the church is really perfectly positioned to meet the physical and spiritual needs of people all around the world. And it's exciting 
exciting really to to be working together with compassion and with you as some of the listeners who are engaging with compassion and hey you probably have the bible app on your phone right i mean a lot of us have the bible app you get that verse of the day maybe you make a meme in the morning you share something on social media or something like that if you're looking for a great new devotional plan to start your day compassion now has great plans that are going to inspire you and pray you through scripture to consider ways to simplify your life maybe in the midst of this busy stressful time uh, these devotionals maybe will help you so you can check out how they're you know how these devotionals can help you but also just stay rooted in christ in the word of god and you can head over you can head over to compassion to check those out compassion.ca slash bog slash you version but of course always there's going to be a link down in the show notes below i'd love you to check out those you version bible devotionals i'm doing them myself i'd love you to message me if you're doing them it'd be fun to do them along with you All right, my friends, I want to enter into the conversation now with Dr. B, Dr. Brenda Salter-McNeil. I hope it inspires you, challenges you, and... um and really just it just excites you about what the future of the church could be. So here is Brenda Salter-McNeil. Welcome to the Word Made Digital Podcast with Joanna LaFleur. You're listening to Season 5, sponsored by Compassion Canada and Wycliffe College. Word Made Digital brings you interviews with Christian creatives and communicators to inspire, challenge, and equip you in your own work. The church has the best news in the world, so we want to help you be the best communicators in the world. Here we go. Brenda Salter McNeil, Dr. B. Thank you so much for joining on We're Made Digital. I'm really honored to have you on the podcast. Yeah, the honor is mine. I'm happy to have this conversation, really happy to bridge this conversation to Canada. This is always, for me, a great pleasure. Uh, Yeah, well, and and we'll get into maybe that note in a a few minutes, uh, you know, as we go on the conversation around some U.S. versus or in comparison to sort of the global conversation about race and reconciliation and all of these things. But um, before we go too far, can you introduce yourself to people who wouldn't know you? Can you uh, share a little bit about who Yeah. You are? So I'm Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil. I now live in Seattle, Washington, where I am a professor at Seattle Pacific University. I teach in the School of Theology and I specialize in the area of racial reconciliation and intercultural studies. And so I teach both undergraduate classes and seminary classes, and I really do enjoy being a professor. I'm a part-time professor because I also am an author of uh, four different books, the latest being Becoming Brave, Finding the Courage to Pursue Racial Justice Now. And I am also, as I do speaking and consulting in this area of reconciliation from a Christian perspective, I'm also on the pastoral staff of a local church. So I don't just talk about this or write about this. I'm a part of a congregation who's trying to live into this. So I'm the pastor of preaching and reconciliation at my local church. And I also fill that role as a part-time associate pastor. So um, those are the professional aspects of who I am. (laughs) I'm a wife and I'm a mother. I'm married to uh, Dr. J. Derek McNeil. He is an academic psychologist by training and is now the president of a graduate school here in Seattle. Uh, 
a small graduate school called the the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. And so that keeps him quite busy. And we are the proud parents of two young adult children who live in California. And uh, COVID has made this little complicated because right around now, they'd be making plans to come home. And we're going to have to figure out what the new normal is going to look like for Christmas. But they are wonderful human beings and the joy of my life. I'm very grateful to be their mom. Uh, well, and I see on social media, you're posting pictures of them. So I feel like I know them a little bit, even though I do not, <laughs> um, you know, and we, we met originally in, um, I was saying just before we kind of hit the record button that our original connection was through InterVarsity and Urbana, which is a huge, you know, at the time, uh, 22, 20, 25,000 student missions conference. It's done at Christmas time. And you spoke there and this was, uh, the early year 2000. So 15 plus years ago, that's cause I got a little older myself. And even then, I mean, this conversation was, um, uh, at the forefront. And yet here we are 15 years later. I mean, for you, 30 years of this as your work. Um, I, I, maybe let's just get a context of what's the difference. I mean, we're talking about when you started in this conversation 30 years ago. Um, and then even maybe what, even five or 10 years ago, I mean, things are changing and yet not changing. So what would you say about that? Yeah. You know, to answer your question, it's interesting because the title of this book, Becoming Brave, many people say, we've been hearing you preach about this for over 30 years. So what's with the becoming brave part? Because you've always been a champion of this work. You've always been outspoken mm. about this. We heard you just like you're saying, I heard you at this conference. I heard you speak at this church, or I heard you, you know, do this presentation at InterVarsity or staff conference. And so what are you meaning by becoming brave? This is now the answer to your question about what's changed. I have been preaching this message of reconciliation from a biblical perspective for most of my adult life. And as I began this work, my presupposition was that as Christians, we didn't fully understand this as a biblical mandate on the church, that those of us who are Mm -hmm. followers of Jesus uh, really don't get that this is not an optional thing, but this is integral to our discipleship, that if we are following Jesus and we are following Jesus toward the kingdom of God, that kingdom of God looks a certain way. It's made up of people of every tribe, every nation, every language, and every ethnic group, right? It's made up of men and women who all Mm -hmm. worship together. It's made up of a place where there is no violence, where where, um, implements of war are beaten into plowshares and used for cultivation and flourishing of creation, right? And and it's a place where the lion and lamb Mm -hmm. lay down together. So this kingdom is not a metaphorical vision. There's some very clear, specific things that this kingdom entails. And so for me, I was trying to encourage and 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 prophetically persuade the people of God to get on mission toward the kingdom of God, to become more reflective of what the kingdom of God looks like, so that we could be a witness in the world around us to the reconciling power of Jesus Christ. And you know me well enough to know I preached my guts out about that. I preached my complete heart out about that, right? What's changed though, 
is that over the years, I've come to find, especially in the last, I'd say, four years or so, that I do not now believe that this is just a lack of biblical knowledge. I believe, based upon what I've seen Mm. of how people have made excuses and been complicit with injustice because of their own nationalistic views or their own political concerns or whatever the case might be, that in some ways, it's not just a lack of understanding what the Bible says. It's almost wanting reconciliation on our own terms. We want to have it, but we don't want Mm. it to make us have to engage in social, political, uh, systemic change. And that has become problematic for me. So the becoming brave is me speaking more directly to systemic change because reconciliation is not just being diverse. Reconciliation is not just making friends with other people. Reconciliation is transforming the world around us through the work and the word of, of, of what God has given us to say and embody. Ta-da. So that's, that's, that's right. what's changed. And it's become passionate for me because the world needs us to fill the role that God has given us to play. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, there's, okay. There's so much we could pull on and as a thread out of everything you just said, I'm really debating which way to go next. Uh, but, you know, I just struck by, I was listening to, uh, every day I listen to The Daily, which is a New York Times podcast about so it goes a deeper dive into some news piece or another. And, and, and so I was just realizing just in particular in today's episode, the guy they were interviewing was, it was stuff to do with people who were, um, who were doing all the, uh, election, uh, vote counting and making sure that that was done correctly. Uh, they were getting death threats and violence against them and all these things. And the guy who's leading this initiative says it's un-American. This violence and this, uh, you know, threats against other people. I don't know. He's he's saying that these are un-American. Now, as a Canadian listening in, I, it just struck me like, actually, that sounds very American. <laughs> um, I've heard this rhetoric so often this year around not just an election, around many topics, that something is un-American, and yet I'm struck by how American. And not just American, yes. but, you know, how human maybe is a better way of saying it. Uh, you know, <laughs> sin, violence, um, division, hatred between people groups, yes. um, uh, communities that have been established on the backs of other people, uh, people getting rich on the backs of other people, people <laughs> um, yes. exerting violence and power in other parts of the world. This is this is uh, that is quite um, historically the American story. Um, it's been painted a different way, but I'm rambling on to say, tell me more about the systemic thing here. Um, cause you're saying it's not just one person to another. There's systems that need to be uprooted, Absolutely. torn down, lit on fire. I don't know how you would say all it. of the above, Tell me more all of about the that. above dismantled. <laughs> and, and, and I think you're right. Unfortunately, that's where we've got to go back to and start. And so I don't, I don't discredit any of the work I've done over the last 30 years. I've given my heart and my all, and I'm, I'm thankful for what I've done. I'm proud because for me, this is my act of obedience to God. And that's what I'm trying to do, but you're absolutely 
right that we're not going to heal this if we don't tell the truth about this. And so it is very American to do the things that we're seeing. And the problem is when the church then becomes a part of justifying it, when the church then makes excuses for it, when the church is silent in the silent in the face of it, right? But if we look back into our history here in our country and those listening from Canada will have to do the work around the indigenous people in that country, right? But we all have a narrative and we can't start talking about reconciliation without looking back and telling the truth about how we got to where we are. We can't fix it if we don't diagnose it, right? And so the first part of a diagnosis, when we go to the doctor and the doctor says, you know, we tell the symptom. And so we're all pretty good at naming the symptom. But then before the doctor begins to treat us, the doctor then says, tell me some more about your family history. Does anybody in your family have this ailment? Has there been a history of such and such in your family, right? And so here in the United States, what you just said is absolutely right. We got to tell the truth. Yes, indeed, this is American. We have done this before and we'll do it over and over and over again until we stop and speak the truth and repent. We literally have to say, you know, God, the truth is we have separated children from their families before. And we can't make believe that somehow we just woke up one day, had a civil rights movement, Dr. King marched, and all of a sudden now we're, 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 we're united. We're not united. And if we don't tell the truth about that, if we don't say that we have built systems on the backs of other people's work and we don't pay people for what they have done and we have had a history of finding that there's 1% of people who seem to do very well and other people who are on the bottom with no real clear path to becoming uh, uh, sustaining, uh, contributing people who can sustain their lives. That is true. There is an economic disparity in our country. There is a racial disparity in our country. There is a gap between men and women in this country. There is the truth around the fact that environmental injustice impacts poor people and black and brown people in a way that it doesn't impact people who have the wealth to keep certain things out of their neighborhood. Unless we systemically tell the truth about our our racialized society that has been constructed from its inception on the hierarchy of human difference. If we don't say that, and if we don't name that that is the evil or the sickness that has us in the predicament we find ourselves in, we will never be able to fully heal it. So I love that scripture. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, seek my face and turn from your wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven. I will hear I will then I will I hear from heaven and I will heal your 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 land that I believe is possible for us but it requires a humility that tells the truth. So you're saying it is possible. I mean we're talking about generations of history of the same direction maybe incremental change but not systemic change. Um I can't imagine you would do the work you do if you didn't think it was possible. So tell me why, especially, you know, I'm looking at 2020, um, particularly what happened in the summer months around the world um, in response to, you know, police killings, sorry, police killing people. (laughs) Uh, What do you think is, is changing? I mean, is it changing? Can it change? Where's the... 
where's the light at the end of the tunnel? Is there any? Yeah, I'm glad we're having this conversation during Advent because is there a light? Yes, thanks mm-hmm. be to God, there is a light. The Bible tells us that Jesus came into the world and Jesus came and brought life and light and that light was the life of all people and the darkness will not, cannot extinguish it. That is the light. And that's why we, the people of God, have been called to be ambassadors of reconciliation, because it is not something that we can humanly manufacture. So my belief is that reconciliation is an ongoing spiritual process involving repentance, forgiveness, and justice that transforms broken relationships and systems to reflect God's original intention for all creation to flourish. So my hope is not based on our ability to get it right. My hope is that we, the people of God, will reflect the light of God in a dark world, understanding that this is a spiritual process, and we will do our part of bringing that light to the places where we live, where we work, and where we serve. So I have hope that the one God, God is God, and God will always try That's the story of the resurrection. When we think it's all over and done with, we have a God who says it's not over. So I trust God more than I trust us. Amen. (laughs) My hope rests with God. (laughs) So thank God that the tomb is empty. And that just tells me that our God reigns. And I believe that. And our job then is to be those beacons of light, salt and light in a dark world. And that's who I'm preaching to. I know that not everyone will choose to reflect the light of God, even if they say what they mouth they want to. I know that more people will talk a good game than live a good game. But my calling, and I really mean this, you can hear it in my voice. I've gotten serious in my old age. Here's my mission. I am called to inspire and, and empower the next generation of Christian leaders to be practitioners of reconciliation in their various spheres of influence around the world. That's what gives me hope. I am not trying to change the whole church. And here in the United States, I'm not trying to change all white evangelicals. Because sometimes if I had to put my hope in that, I would go to bed and stay there. I have hope. (laughs) I have hope that there's a generation coming behind me that literally knows that they are living in a global society that requires something of them to be different in the earth. And I'm trying to inspire and empower them to practice what they preach as real witnesses of the kingdom of God. Amen. Yes. So, oh man, so good. So good. So you're talking about the next generation and you're talking about, uh, you're using language that's global really, because we are in this increasingly globalized. I mean, the pandemic is evidence of that, that a disease can so, or virus can so quickly spread around the globe no regard for ethnicity, wealth, or riches, or, you know, I mean, there, there is a disproportionate amount in, po- in impoverished areas, but, but it can affect anyone anywhere because the world has so globalized. So what are you seeing um, 
when what are you excited about or how is um because this is a podcast of course where we talk a little bit about the digital world um what are you seeing with the next generation in terms of mobilization or communicating reconciliation is in regards to the fact that we all have these phones in our hand uh, you know, every day. Yeah. Well, when you talked about the coronavirus and you talked about the fact that it does impact people from all different backgrounds, rich and poor, uh, uh, without any regard to those distinctions, that's actually true. The reason why more black and brown people die is because of the systemic inequality in healthcare. It's not the coronavirus that's killing more people who are black or brown or indigenous. It's the it's the lack of health care <laughs> that's and, and the exorbitant fees around uh, insurance and what your insurance company will will provide and not provide. It's that kind of stuff that causes a disproportionate death rate among certain communities versus others. But the coronavirus has no distinctions between who can get affected. Right. And and so right. that's 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 the, the first thing for us to understand. And then when you talk about the d- this digital uh, world that I find myself now curiously in because of the coronavirus, it's it's a it's an interesting kind of thing. Right. Because I would have been a person who would have said to you pre-pandemic, I'm not a techie. I'm just not a technological person. I'm the kind of person where my my young adult children will just kind of take the cell phone out of my hands and just say, give it to me. <laughs> you know, just give it to me. <laughs> you know? Um, but as of um, this year, early this year, when it was very clear that as a college professor, I would not be standing in the classroom with my students and that everything I would do teaching classes, convening with students, preaching sermons, everything would be done with these digital devices that that somehow the at first I thought, well, everything I used to do has now been completely canceled. I will not be speaking anywhere. The truth be told, because of technology in this digital world that we're living in, I have had the opportunity to have impact in Palestine, in Australia. Uh, I am doing more stuff now than I was doing when my physical body had to get places. And so it's an interesting, interesting thing that's happening because for some years I've been praying a a scripture and that scripture is kind of, it's not like I even understand it. It's almost tapped me on my shoulder and I muse on it and I wonder what it is God is saying to me. And it's simply this, when John's disciples came to Jesus and said to him, why don't your disciples fast and do the ritual cleansings that we do? Why don't they do the traditional things that we do? Jesus said, because new wine requires new wineskins. You can't pour new wine into an old wineskin. Well, I say that, Joanna, because I truly believe that this pandemic has forced us to find ways to create new wineskins. And those new wineskins, I think, give opportunity for the work of reconciliation to have access to places that I physically would not have gone, conversations to be 
had in communities that normally would not have even thought of each other as dialogue partners. I'm wondering if because of necessity, new wineskins are emerging emerging in this di- digital world we find ourselves much more dependent upon. Um, talking about that, the digital world has really enabled your ministry to grow in a way that you didn't expect, you hadn't planned for. I often think, you know, what might the Apostle Paul or, you know, you've said a Martin Luther King Jr., you know, what what would these men have said if their message uh, of reconciliation, the reconciliation of Christ, had had the kind of technology that we have. And of course, the irony is, as we're talking, we had tech issues. So there, it's not perfect. Even with all of this tech available, it's not um, it's not perfect, but what, what you're, you're doing even further as you lean into communication, there's this line that you say that, um, you don't, it's something around like Christians who refuse to preach Jesus without justice. Um, tell me more about that. Why does, what is, I guess that word, maybe it becomes politicized the word yes. justice or social justice. Um, can you give us a? I, it, it isn't in my Christian circle. Social justice isn't a bad word, but can you? Do you have any context for why that is bad for some Christian circles, and then why we need to include it <laughs> in our communicating? Yeah, when I started preaching back, when you named at the very beginning of our conversation that you heard me speak about fifteen years ago at a conference of about twenty some thousand college students from around the world, um, I was as passionate then as I am now, right? And I though was told by white evangelicals that there were certain topics that felt like political, like you were bringing in a leftist liberal agenda into the conversation. And I have no hidden motive. I have no hidden agenda. And so I avoided those type of hot topic, you know, um, hot button topics that would be perceived as me trying to bring in my political position on something. But this is what I've come to understand. Here in the United States, we have made a confused conflation between the difference between being political and being partisan, right? Partisan is what party you choose. And that can be anybody's choice. Politics, the word politics comes from the Latin of people, pol- the, the polis, right? It has to do with the people. And so I'm here to tell you, I was coming back from a trip in Costa Rica. I speak Spanish. I went to Costa Rica because I want to become fluent. I went for a summer of immersion. And as I was coming back, I was coming through customs and there was a line, uh, two different lines, one line for the United States residents and Canadians, interesting enough. All of us were mm-hmm. in one line coming back into the U.S. And then there was another line for for non-residents. I looked at both of those lines and I was pretty amazed at the amount of diversity in both lines. I mean, it looked like people from all kinds of places were in these lines, right? Both the one for residents and non-residents. And I thought to myself, we already have enough diversity. And as soon as I thought thought that, I felt the spirit of God Stop me in my tracks. And the sense I had was God was challenging me to watch my scarcity thinking. And so I felt like while I was in that line, I felt like God said these things to me through the spirit in my mind. Do you believe that I have enough for everybody? And I thought, yes, Lord. Do you believe that I want the same thing for other people that I want for you? 
Yes, Lord. Right. And then I felt like as I pondered those things in my heart, I felt like God said to me, you can't say you love people and not care about the policies that impact those people. Because the kind of thinking that I was doing is what justifies people in building walls and keeping some people out so that other people can stay in. And I realized then that issues like immigration and education, mass incarceration, health care, those aren't just partisan issues. Those are issues that impact people's lives. And I have to care about them if I say to people, I love Latino people. God knows I do. I speak another language. Great. But that doesn't matter if I don't care about the policies that are impacting those people. And when I was having that experience, the walls were being built between the United States and the southern border that had demonized Latino people that were taking children away from their parents. And God was saying to me, that kind of thinking you're doing is what has given people license to create that kind of wall that is damaging other people's lives, dehumanizing other people. You can't think like that. And so I ended up finding myself invited after that experience to go to Washington, D.C. and lobby for immigration reform. And I said yes. And I did go. Mm -hmm. And I was a part of other clergy lobbying for reform in our country because you can't say you love people and not care about the policies that impact those people's lives. That's why we can't preach Jesus without justice. Mm, yes. Well, and and he he always crossed those lines, you know, the way that Jesus frustrated, angered, you know, the kinds of things that got him killed. Or <laughs> because he was constantly crossing these lines and there's a lot of fear in Christian leadership uh, you know, it's the behind closed doors. A lot of pastors, preachers are going to say what they really think about an issue. Uh, but I find there's such a reluctance in the pulpit because maybe if, at, if nothing else, it's your salary is based on people giving donations. Um, and so it's difficult to be someone who uh, says things that piss people off. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> or divide people. Or, you know, it is a That's political. Right. And I, you know, in my years in church ministry as in pastoral work, I often felt like it was a political, I compared it to being a politician because you're trying to do what's best for the people, but also the people are the ones who pay your salary and they can kick you out if they're not happy with the decision you made that was in their best interest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or that they yeah. didn't agree with, you know. And so, you know, what is your word then to Christian leaders? You know, yes. you're talking about this courage and bravery, but tell you know, tell us more about that or, or can you be more practical? Are there some things you're doing right now that, you know, you said you went and lobbied, for example, in Washington, yeah. what are some yeah. practical things? Yeah, I'll be real honest. This book that I've written, I love this book, Becoming Brave. It's probably in my mind the best I've ever done because I've stopped trying to play nice and and hold it in the middle. I think I think mm. that it is it is the call of God for us to speak up and we can't kind of try to save our jobs. So, brother and sister pastor, whoever you are, I'm talking to you, college professor, I'm talking to you, whoever it is who's trying to save your life 
life metaphorically or or politically or 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 economically the bible says jesus says he or she who tries to save your life will lose it and those of right. you who lose your life for my sake and for the gospel you'll find it that's what i would say to every single person placating folk in your church trying to make yourself be nice stop it and that's why i love this book cuz esther is a young girl who finds herself in a difficult, if not horrible situation where she is taken from her father figure, taken into a harem by God's mercy. Somehow she is chosen as a queen and she finds herself now in a position of authority, in a position of privilege, and she does have access to power. And she knows that struggle of every pastor who says, if I say something about this, I'm going to get in trouble in my church. So when Mordecai says to her, hey, Esther, you've lived in this palace. And I'm telling you, college campuses become palaces. Churches become palaces. Our neighborhoods become palaces. All of that stuff, our jobs can become the palace. And we've learned to kind of get along in these places, right? And Jesus, mm. I, I, I would say, would come send a Mordecai to us outside and say, hey, you need to look outside this palace that you're you've you're in now because somehow you've th- you've come to think that it's all about your safety and your security but there are people outside this palace who need your advocacy they need your solidarity and so her response is what most people would respond and I know that cuz I've responded that way too she basically said who me I can't go talk to the truth to power. I, I'll get in trouble. Are you kidding? <laughs> like the last queen, <laughs> it didn't go real well for her. <laughs> right. So yeah. I'm not going to rock the boat. And this is what Mordecai says to her and to us. If you keep silent at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will come for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And then he concludes by saying, who knows? Maybe you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Maybe you were called to be a pastor for such a time as this. Maybe you have access to the uh, 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 that job that you have, to the education that you've been given. Maybe all of that was for you to be able to use your voice and your influence for such a time as this. A, a big part of not being afraid and being willing to step into this is being aware. And I think self-aware, a lot of the conversation for white people is around white privilege and just whether a willful ignorance or a lack of exposure, a, a, for whatever reason, p- white people, because they haven't experienced it in the same way, in many cases, don't even, haven't even believed it existed, that this wasn't an issue anymore in our nations. Um, so when people are kind of awakening to this issue, becoming aware, um, it can feel overwhelming. What are some things that we can do? We're talking not just go make a friend and make a feel, not a feel good moment, but actually help with systemic issues. What are some things that you would say we can do? 
Yeah. Number one, get closer to it, get proximate to where pain is actually happening. So um, I think that, that Mordecai says to Esther, Hey, you don't even know what's happening out here. And so I have a friend, he went to seminary with me and um, I was deeply saddened. He, he, he and I see the world differently, but, uh, and he decided that on Facebook, he needed to correct me. And I just feel like how many people who are actually hurting do you actually talk to? Because his whole belief was that the press is lying and that's why, you know, that's why I'm so misguided about what I think is happening. And I thought to him, have you ever talked to somebody in the Black Lives Matter movement? Do you know anything about anyone personally before you call them a Marxist? I'm here to tell you, Joanna, most people don't know. And they're they're spouting off all this stuff based upon the echo chamber that they're in. And they don't even know somebody personally who actually is being separated from their child at the border, has never seen or talked to somebody who actually doesn't have health care, you know. So yeah. I'd say, stop it, stop it, stop it, because I'm getting sick and tired. So you can tell, see, 30 years ago, I was nicer. Now I am tired. So I'm saying yeah. to people, what you need to do is literally get close enough to where suffering is happening, where real lives are being impacted. And then, then you decide what to do, because there's no way that we could actually see somebody have the kinds of experiences that we're talking about where this young man goes jogging in the United States, two white men see him, assume that he's somebody who broke into a, or looked into a house that was under construction and shot him dead in the street. Now, I have a son who goes jogging and I wouldn't wish that on any parent. So if you get close enough to a situation, it'll make it stop being a political football that you debate back and forth, but it'll put a real face and a real name to it. And then you would have to say, number two, if that happened to my child, what would I want somebody to do? And then that's what you do. You don't mm -hmm. wait until it's your child. If somebody took your child, your grandchild, and took it away from its mother or father, and a year or two later, you can't find that baby, what would you want somebody to do for you? And that's what you do for them. That's what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves. So that's what I would say. Get close enough to the real narratives of people's lives so that you can see it for yourself. And then based upon what you see, ask yourself, if that was me, what would I want somebody to do? And then you get about the work of trying to do that. Yeah. Well, you're talking about making it personal. <laughs> get personal. If it feels distant, far, overwhelming, like just systemic issues, you don't know the name and story personally, make it personal, go out, get active, go to anywhere in your city, your town, your region where you can get to know people who are different than you, who are the immigrant, the refugee, the indigenous person, whatever. Being um, impacted by it, you know, yes. being impacted by it. 
you just have to say, okay, I might, I might disagree around, this is a hot topic, sexuality. I might have different views about that, but I need to hear a person's story and life before I make decisions about what things I'm going to advocate for. I, I'd, I'd have to know. And if that was my, my, if that was me, what would I want somebody to do? Would I say, well, then no housing for you. Really? Would I want that for myself? See, it stops being about an issue when it's about real human beings. And if we believe that all people are made in the image of God, no exceptions, then we would want for one person what we would want for all people. And that's just the truth, whether we agree with them politically or not, whether we agree with them on every social issue or not, we we as the people of God have got to believe that all people are made in the image of God. And if that's true, then what does each person in the image of God require? Everybody requires a place to live. Everybody requires safety and health care and food. Every child has the opportunity, should not, like in the United States, there are places where kids are drinking water that has lead in it. And we know that lead poisoned water leads to, to brain damage and health issues. Nobody should send their kid to drink water and, and out of school fountains and, and then learn that for two years they've been drinking lead poisoned water. Do you see, that's not, those are not partisan issues. That's not me being political. That's me being human. That's me being a Christ follower. And I really need the church to wake up. I really do. I need us to wake up. And let me tell you why. I told you I'm a college professor and most of the students in my, in my classes are white students. Do you know we have a generation of young white students, young white people who don't believe in the church anymore? They are leaving the church and Christian organizations like InterVarsity and other places because they see us as hypocrites. They don't believe their parents. They don't believe their pastors. And they don't believe their grandparents because they're seeing a world and they're watching this hateful, hypocritical rhetoric. And they all they know is that this ain't right. They know that. And what's happening is they're divorcing themselves from church, even though they're trying to figure out how to hold on to God. So I'm saying to everybody listening to me, if we want to find our generation of young people and bring them back to a belief in the God we represent, the Jesus who raised from the dead and is the light of the world, then we're going to have to start acting like it. We're going to have to start practicing what we preach because these young people can see the com- the, 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 the the complicity and the hypo- hypo- hypocrisy and it does not make them want to serve God. I, I, there's two directions I want to go in brief. Obviously you're an advocate for education. You touched on this. Um, I find that a lot of the, the classic, I have a friend who runs a website called unseminary.com and I, it, it always sticks in my mind because it's all the stuff you never learned in seminary. You know, there's something lacking, but <laughs> like there's just so many things, you know, I, I mean, I work with <laughs> pastors and leaders all the time who have no idea how to use digital content because they were never trained in it. And so they need someone to help them. There's so many issues they can't, possibly cover in a, in a few year program at a seminary, but do you still see the place of a formal education in this, in these issues? And then further to that, would you say to someone, go to seminary or would you say, go get a law degree or should they go into politics? Or, uh, I mean, you also have young, young people in your own household who are studying. Um, what would you say to 
the direction of dealing with these issues, addressing this? Yeah, I think that we should study whatever it is we're called to do. So I, I, I feel like the call of God on our lives dictates what it is we choose to study. So I think just keep working at identifying your purpose. It's not a one-shot thing. We we discover our purpose on the journey. And so if the journey is taking you to seminary, yes, go to seminary, but choose the seminary you go to very, very carefully because it's an ideology that's also being woven into that theology. And you have to decide if you want to drink that Kool-Aid. And so I do not affirm every seminary. And I would say vet that seminary very carefully if in fact you want to be a person Mm -hmm. of justice and reconciliation. You should hold them to the fire so that when they're interviewing you, you should also interview them and ask them, how do they demonstrate a lived commitment to reconciliation? Choose seminaries that give you that. Other than that, you'll get an education that's not relevant. And if you're called to other forms of, 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 of engagement, civic or education or health or business or technology, do your work and do it well, become excellent at what you do, but know that at the bottom of that, if you are a Christ follower, it should always be rooted in a sound theological basis because our theology impacts our anthropology and our anthropology impacts our sociology. Translation, what we believe about God tells us what we believe about people and what we believe about people tells us about the society we would like to build together. Uh, you're, you're serving and working in the local church, as you said, living this out practically. Um, you took over leadership from Eugene Cho when he stepped into new ministry uh, at Quest Church. So is there anything you can point us to at the local church that you are leading in um, as a ministry program or a teaching series that we could look to to see how this works and plays out in that local context? Yeah. Um, one of the things that I have given my life to is is doing this work from a biblical perspective. And so I've had many churches who have said to me, uh, based upon the book that came out prior to Becoming Brave, Roadmap to Reconciliation uh, 2.0, they wanted to know, is there a way that you have over the years developed a strategy for implementing reconciliation? Reconciliation in a local congregation. And so over the course of two years with churches, both in the United States and Canada, I developed an implementation strategy for churches to live into the value of reconciliation. People who are interested in that can find it at my website, saltermcneil.com, under the various services that I am honored to offer. One has to do with church consulting, and there's a complete implementation strategy that goes with Roadmap to Reconciliation. 2.0 that can be used in churches for any congregation that wants to become a reconciling church. And I pray that some people will take advantage of that as a practical tool to help them move forward. Amazing. Dr. Brenda, thank you so much for your time today. Inspiring, passionate as always, and uh, challenging to all of us. I I hope that people who don't know of you are going to pick up a copy of this book and uh, who are going to pick up Becoming Brave, Finding the Courage to Pursue Racial Justice Now, and they're going to build their courage and do something about this. Thank you so much. Dr. B, thank you so much. It was amazing and a privilege to speak with her, to lean into her insight, to get preached at today. I hope you'll share this episode with someone else if it connected with you and gives you some strong challenge to consider 
in your own life, whether you agree or not. I think that's what I hope that this conversation will lead you to think and lead you to question what you are working on as a leader and as you live out your faith in this digital world. Next up on the podcast, we have Ray Aldred. If you don't know Ray Aldred, he's an indigenous leader in Canada, one of the foremost Christian indigenous leaders. So I have a lot to, to learn from him about indigenous storytelling and how Indigenous communities um, are interacting with digital to bring story to life. Uh, it's a fascinating theological conversation, fascinating storytelling and communications conversation. You're going to love that conversation next week with Ray Aldred. But thanks, of course, to Wycliffe College, who is making this podcast, pos- podcast possible. I want you to go get that free swag. So go to the wycliffecollege.ca slash digital link and uh, get that free swag. Hit them up. They love to send it to you. And you can check out the school, too, if you would like. And of course, Compassion, they're doing amazing things. Why don't you join me and join Compassion to do this a devotional study, really to just center ourselves in a busy, crazy time where we're trying to find out which way is up sometimes. Um, this pandemic going on longer, the stuff in the news is kind of crazy. Uh, why don't you come and join us in one of their devotionals? You can check out the link below uh, in the show notes. I would love for you. Let me know. I would love for you to join me. Let me know if you do. All right, we'll see you next week with Ray Aldred. But in the meantime, hit up those tutorial videos if you want to learn some things about communication for yourself and grow your skills or share them with others. And I will see you on the Digital Church Facebook group. Until next week, bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Word Made Digital podcast with Joanna LaFleur. If you like this content, hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Rate it and share this episode with your friends. Head over to wordmadedigital.com for more free tools and helpful content for creatives and communicators. We love helping you communicate the best news in the world.